So as I mentioned, we are in James chapter 1. We'll today look at verses 19 through 27. If you've been here the last few weeks, we started into this series, Uncivilized, which is kind of using that kind of idea to unpack what James walks us through in his book, which is really, he strips away all the stuff that maybe we kind of add into this thing called Christianity. He gets down to the core of what it looks like, and then he comes right at us. So really, he takes the gloves off, and he just comes at us. And so each week, you're kind of like, get it ready for the, to absorb the impact of what God's saying through what James has written. And that's true of today. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uncivilized obedience, which is the obedience that God desires for us, that he intends for us in following Jesus, that what we learn and what we understand and what we take in from God's word actually translates into action in our lives. Now, you think, oh yeah, that makes sense, I can do that, but I think the biggest issue for most of us, I know it's true for my life, is that my issue is not information. It's not, if I just knew a few more things, then life would be better. If I just studied a little bit more, then I'd understand more, and then everything would come clear, and I'd be more obedient. I think you're like me. Most of us, the challenge is not information. The challenge is transformation. It's taking what I know and translating it to how I live. That's called transformation. That's our biggest challenge. That's what God's desire for us. The the author, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, once said, he said, one act of obedience is better than a hundred sermons. And as a pastor, I agree wholeheartedly. We can get tons of information infused into us, but if it never translates into the actual action that God's desired from what he's inspired from his word, then we might as well not even studied or understood or heard or listened to it. Why? Because it didn't mean anything in our lives. And so this morning we're going to talk about what that translation looks like when it goes from just this knowledge and this information, this understanding, to actually living it out in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, let me start in verse 1 or verse 19 of James 1. James says this, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it Not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So if you're here last week, we're reading through these passages, and there's just like a ton that James just kind of lays there and says, okay, here it is. And again, that, this, this week, so I'm going to try my best to work all the way through the, the key things that I think that James is highlighting for us. So, so look at verse 19. There's, there's a few things to start with, three things that I think James kind of lays the groundwork or the prerequisites for obedience. He says, listen, get these things down before you try to address obedience in your life. The first one is in verse 19, and that is that we need to listen first. James says, everyone should be quick to listen, and slow to speak. Now, you don't have to answer by raising your hand, and you don't have to answer for the person sitting next to you, okay? How many of you think we talk too much? You know, answer, you can answer for yourself, but culturally, do we talk too much? Relationally, do we talk too much? We talk way 
too much. Our default is to open our mouths before we open our ears. It is. Go turn your TV on, turn the radio on, check out social media. Everybody has something to say, but not many people want to listen. So you turn on your TV and what? You can watch shows about politics and everybody has something to say, but nobody wants to listen. You can flip to another channel and you can hear everything going on in the entertainment world, all the gossip, all the information, all the, ga- 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 ga, all the gab about everything that's happening, but nobody wants to listen. And in our lives, that has, tends to be kind of the way that we live our life, that we tend to want to speak before we listen. And when it comes to obedience, here's the challenge. When we talk too much, we don't give God any t- time, space, or room in our lives to actually speak because all we're doing is talking. And not too many people have perfected the talent of being able to talk and actually listen at the same time. But being silent and letting God speak from his word, sometimes it's hard because we want to give our opinion on it or we want to explain something or we want to talk or we want to ask God questions or we want to complain to him and God says, shh, just listen. I think because the danger in what happens is not only do we talk too much, but in that talking, we assume too much that we know what God wants. We make assumptions about, we kind of fill in the blanks when God's speaking like, oh yeah, I know, I know what you're saying, or I've read that before, I've heard that before. And instead of just listening objectively and letting God speak to us, we just fill in the blanks for him instead of listening. And when we get to that point where we're, we talk too much and, and we assume too much, then I think what happens is we start to actually ignore things. We start to be selective, and we'll talk about that in our hearing of what God is saying. Because we start to tune him out in certain areas and lock in on other areas and not really hear what he's saying. Why? Because we're too busy trying to talk or assume or ignore instead of just simply listening. Second thing, look at going on in verse 19 to verse 20. He says, first, listen. Second, he says, surrender your pride. This is a huge one. He says, everyone should be, he talks about slow to become angry. Why? Because anger, human anger, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So why is he bringing in anger when he's talking about being slow to speak and quick to listen? Because anger is one of the primary mechanisms of pride. Think about it in your own life. You may not be somebody who struggles with your temper, but when somebody says something to you that may have a sliver of truth to it, and you know deep down inside that it's true, what is your first reaction? Anger. How dare you say that about me? How dare you accuse me of that? That couldn't possibly be true. And inside the little voice says, oh, yes, it is. What is pride? Pride is the deflective shield that we raise up over our life when truth comes. And we just push it away. We just push it away. Why? Because I don't really want to hear it anymore. I don't want to know the truth. Because I know that if I really embrace that, that means I'm going to have to be honest. And I'm going to have to open myself up. And I'm going to have to expose myself. And people might know the real me. And I don't want to do that. So pride comes right up. And is the defense mechanism. As you know, because anger, what does anger do? It, it forces other people to either yell louder or shut up. That's what it does. It pushes people away relationally. When we become angry, nobody wants to be around us. And if we can just talk louder or yell stronger or show more anger, then we can shut down the truth and not listen to what God may be saying to you and I. You have to let that shield go. You have to listen first. We have to allow our pride to be put to the side. And then there's a third thing that that James mentions. It's kind of this progression in verse 21 is humbly receive God's word. It says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. What is the moral filth in our life? It's our pride that keeps us from addressing the issues in our life. 
That's why being in authentic and transparent relationships is so important because it allows us to diffuse our pride and actually accept the truth that God wants to implant into our lives from his word. And when that becomes true in our lives, then that's when obedience begins to happen in our life. Why? Because we're no longer deflecting the truth that's coming at us. We're embracing it in such a way that now it's translating into action in our lives. But if we live in that, that, that kind of tension that sometimes is so hard for us, and, that, and I think this is true. I, I know this is probably my like, self-confession today, but I know this is true of me. When, when sometimes when I don't want to hear truth, but I know that truth is being shared, I make it, it makes it really easy for me to not apply it to my life, but to apply it to everybody else's life. Anybody ever done that? You want to be honest? So like, like you're reading something or you're listening to something, you're like, yeah, that's really good, that's right. And in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, that's good for this person and this person and that person. And they really struggle in their life. They should listen to this. And in, deep down inside, you're just saying, no, that's not really me. That's not really me. As a pastor, I, I have this unique experience in counseling appointments, especially with husbands and wives, and I'm dealing with different issues, and I may be talking to the husband or talking to the wife, and there's truth that's coming out, and as I'm talking to them, it's like I'm talking to the husband saying, hey, this is some areas that I think maybe you should consider working on, and his wife's like, yeah, get him, Pastor John. That's what I've been saying. Tell him, tell him the truth. Meanwhile, I'll turn on her and say, yeah, and the same thing goes for you. See, it's really easy to apply the truth to everybody else's life, but not apply it to our own. I'll see that sometimes even in our Sunday gatherings when I'll get on a certain topic and I'll watch people lean in. Yeah, get them, Pastor John. Let them have it. And then not realizing that, yeah, you're the person. It's kind of like when David encountered the, the prophet Nathan after he sinned with Bathsheba and then he murdered Uriah. You remember that? And so Nathan's telling this story about a rich man that had, you know, a bunch of sheep and the poor man had one and he takes the poor man's sheep, slaughters it. And so David's angry. He's, what, deflected. He's coming up and he's like, yeah. He's like, Nathan, that man's wrong. That man's wrong. He should be killed. He should be put to death. And then Nathan goes, oh yeah, by the way, David, this is my paraphrase. That's you, bud. It's you. You're the one that did this. He went right around David's pride and got to the core of what was going on. And I think sometimes we miss that. We have to humbly accept what God is saying to us. That means that we can't just automatically apply what we hear to everybody else and not apply it to ourselves. Now, James transitions and we get to verse 22. So he gives us kind of the groundwork and says, listen, address these things first if you want to be able to walk obediently. And then he says, this is how we are to live obediently. This comes in the form of some questions. So look at verse 22. The first question you and I have to answer about ourselves and our obedience or disobedience is what is your default? Is it learning or is it living? So James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Just think about that. Let that settle in for a moment. James is actually saying you can listen to the scriptures. You can be exposed to good teaching. You can actually read the Bible and still be self-deceived. That's scary. That means you can go to church. You can be a good Christian, supposedly, and, and still be deceived. Why? Because you don't do what it says. That's, that's scary, but, but that, that means there's a deeper question. How do you and I approach the concept of hearing and learning from the scriptures? Is it just a pursuit of knowledge? Is it just how much more can I learn? Or do we come at it from the angle of how do I live my life according to what I'm hearing and learning and reading? See, the challenge is if we come to the scriptures only to learn, most likely we'll never get to living. 
But if we come to the scriptures with the bent to live, we will always learn in the process. That's the danger of becoming focused on knowledge. That's the danger, in fact, of being overdone with Bible studies and podcasts and information. There's no outflow. And that's why James gives us this warning and says, you can actually deceive yourself because you have so much knowledge. What if we... What if we took how we treat the Bible and how we sometimes selectively read through it or hear, listen to it and not apply it all? What if we took that to instruction manuals? So, for example, not too long ago, Jordan and I, Jordan got a new basketball hoop, so we, were, we pulled out, you know, out of the box all the million pieces, and then the first thing I'm looking for is where's the instructions, right? I want to figure out how to put this together. And so as I start reading, what if I read the manual like we read the Bible? As I read through it, I thought, ah, I don't really like that part. It doesn't really apply yeah, where they said, oh yeah, you need to put this screw here or this bolt there, or you need to fill up the base with, with, with water or with sand. Ah, that's too much work. I don't think I want to do that. What if I left a few steps out? What do you think the outcome would look like? The basketball hoop wouldn't stand up. for, for it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Why? Because I was selective in the way I, I went through it. And you know, th- you have to think when somebody, most likely when they've given instruction, they've actually had the pieces in front of them, they've actually assembled it, so they said, this is step one, step two, step three. Anybody ever, like, actually read through instructions and realized this person did not have this in front of them when they were trying to assemble this? And you know that? Because something's missing here. I think sometimes we intentionally allow things to be missing. No, we wouldn't do that when we have an instruction manual, but sometimes we'll do that when it comes to the scripture because, ah, it doesn't really apply here. But it does apply. It does apply to our lives. Second thing James says about how we live obediently is to ask this question, are you prepared to see reality. Verses 23 and 24, James says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Is that the most ridiculous illustration ever? Anybody look at a mirror this morning? Have you forgotten what you look like this morning? Most of us have an idea, right? We've seen that face before somewhere. It's kind of familiar. We remember, but James is going to the extreme and saying, looking into the scriptures is like if you look in a mirror and you see what you see, and then moments, literally moments as you walk away, you forget in that moment, which that can happen all the time in our life. You have a devotional life. You have a time with the Lord. You come on a Sunday morning. You get teaching. You listen to something. You read the Bible, whatever it is. And the moment after you walk away from that, what do you do? You forget what you've just seen. See, the Bible has this amazing ability as we read it and expose ourselves to it. It actually reads us and exposes us. That's what a mirror does. We stare at a mirror to see what's there, to see if we're okay, to see if our hair is in the right place, to see if make sure everything's the way it's supposed to be. We stare in a mirror and do that. The same thing is true spiritually. We stare into the scriptures, not so that we can gain all this knowledge, but so the scriptures can read back into our lives and say, hey, this is the thing that needs to be addressed. See, when we forget, we, we set ourselves up for making huge mistakes in life. I have a friend who, he told me this story about when the first date that he and his eventual wife went on. And they didn't know they were going to get married, but they were attracted to each other. They both thought that they looked good and said, hey, let me ask you on a date. So he asked her out. She said yes. So they're excited for their first date. And so he was really excited to go out with her. And so he was getting ready. He had picked out all the clothes he thought looked really good. And he was, took a shower and shaved. And he's got his hair just right and everything. And so he gets in the car. He drives over to her house. He knocks on the front door. And she opens the door. And this is, he was telling me a story. He goes, she looked gorgeous. She was beautiful. And he goes, I'm looking at her, and I greeted her, I got a big smile on her face, and then she's looking at me, and she's kind of like, 
not really smiling, but kind of said hi and just kind of staring at me kind of strange. And he said, I'm standing there on her front porch and I can't figure out what's going on. And she's just staring at me. And so he's like, I'm looking like at my clothes. Is there something wrong with me? I don't know what. And she's just kind of staring at me. And then all of a sudden, she looks at him and she's like, there's something on your chin. And then it all came back to him. He realized in the process of shaving, uh, in his hurried, excited preparation, he had cut himself and he got a big wad of tissue and he stuck it on his chin and he looked in the mirror and he said to himself, I have to remember that's there and take that off before I leave. And then he walked away from the mirror and he forgot it was on there. First date, he comes up and says, hey, don't I look good with the bloody tissue hanging from my face? What did he do? Moments after he left the mirror, he forgot what was on his face. That's what James is talking about. Moments after we walk away with an encounter of the scriptures, we forget what God has said to us. We forget what's been reflected back into our lives. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, in the paraphrase called The Message, says, God means what he says, and what he says goes. His, his powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing, no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. It reads us, it exposes us, it opens us up to what's really going on inside of us. And then there's a third thing. James goes on, And to ask this question in verse 25, how do we look into the Bible? How do we look into the Bible? James says this in verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, he says intently, same word that was used to describe Peter when he was looking into the empty tomb to find Jesus. James says, look intently into the word. Look deep into it. Just go back for a moment. Just think about when Peter went to the tomb to find Jesus. He had heard that Jesus may have been resurrected. So he's running to the tomb. And when he gets there to try to find out what's going on, did he just kind of casually walk by the open tomb where the stone had been rolled away? No. What did he do? He went and he looked inside and he probably looked and searched every corner because he had heard and so he's excited that Jesus is alive and so he's looking intently into the tomb to find Jesus. James says that's the same approach to the scriptures. That when we come to the scriptures, there has to be that intention on our part to look and look to find. Don't just look to look. It's like the difference between, between seeing a beautiful kind of scenery like mountains or trees or a beautiful scenery at the ocean, on the coast, whatever, and then actually honing in on one specific thing within that beauty. It's easy to kind of see the panoramic of beauty around you. And we, we're, where our house is, we have a, the for, we're fortunate to kind of have a view of some of the beautiful brown mountains of Simi Valley out, out in our backyard. And so it's, there's trails, there's hiking trails up behind our house. And, and so we've gone on hikes before, and Courtney and Jordan have gone on hikes and stuff, and they'll do that with friends periodically. And so I, I kind of like to go out in our backyard and kind of look around. And so uh, it wasn't, uh, wasn't too long ago, I think, uh, I think it was with the, the, the Romeros. They were over in Jordan. They went up for a hike. And so... They had gone out, and so I went in our backyard, and I'm just kind of looking around, and I like to just look every once in a while. There's certain things where I can see trails. There's a bench that's way up high on this one hill, and, and so it had been like 20 or 30 minutes since they left, and I thought, I wonder if I can find them on the trail. So I went in our backyard, and I just stood there, and I kind of steadied like the mountain. I'm like looking, and I remembered that Jordan was wearing a white shirt. And so I'm like steadying, I'm looking, and I'm looking for any kind of movement. And then all of a sudden, you know, Kim comes out and she goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for Jordan. 
So the two of us are like standing in the background searching the scenery. And then on this rock way up the mountain, I see a white little dot. And I'm like, that's Jordan. There he is. And of course, you know, can you see me, Jordan? I like wave my hands. And then I thought, I have technology. So I got on my cell phone and I said, I called. Jordan answered. I said, Jordan, are you on a rock right now? He goes, yeah. I said, I can see you. He goes, you can? I said, yeah. I said, start waving. So he starts waving. And I'm like, mom and I are going to wave. So we're waving. And he's like, can't see you. Of course, your neighbors are going, what in the world are they doing in their backyard? I'm like waving. And finally he goes, I can see you. I'm like, we can see you. It was like the coolest thing. I know you think we're weird, but that's just exciting, okay? Highlight of my week. How did I find Jordan? Because I took a step back and thought, wow, look at the beautiful brown mountains around my house. No, I knew what I was looking for. I was looking for something specific. So I looked intently on that hillside to find his white t-shirt. When you and I come to the scriptures, when we hear a message, when we listen to the the Bible, there has to be that leaning in where I'm looking because God is going to speak to me. God is going to say something. So I need with anticipation to look intently into what he's saying to me so I can respond. Otherwise, we'll just miss it. We'll get the wealth and the beauty of information but it'll never translate into our lives and we'll never experience that transformation. Two more things about how we live obediently. The the fourth question to ask from what James says, it goes on in verse 25, is also how do you view the Bible? James says, but whoever looks intently into what he says, the perfect law that gives freedom. The perfect law. James is calling the scriptures perfect. Perfect. Now, most of us in this room, we, we use terms, like when we describe the Bible, we say it's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's, it's inspired by God, it doesn't have errors, it's comprehensive, it's everything that we need. Those are kind of terms we use in Christianity to describe God's word, describe the Bible. Now, that's true, except how does that translate into our lives? If the Bible is authoritative, if it is comprehensive, and has everything that I need to know and to live out in my life, it's only as perfect as my obedience is in living it out. I can say the Bible is inspired and it's authoritative, all of what it is, but if I only choose to live out 50% of it, then the other 50% to me comes across as being imperfect because I've chosen not to obey that. When the culture looks at your life and they compare it to what they know of Scripture, they'll be wondering, why don't you live out these other things? That's great that you do that, but why have you left out these things? Because if the law is perfect, that means that we are to obey all of it. But if you're like me, we become selective. James actually says in James 2, verse 10, which we'll get to chapter 2 next week, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I'm going to read, it'll be on the screen, I'm going to read from Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. Before I read it, I want you to just... Again, this is my own journey, and I think this is before when I would read scriptures and I see certain things, particular sins that I know are true and other people are guilty of. Those are the ones that you really lean in on, and the ones that maybe are more true of you, you you kind of pull back on. Let me explain. So let me read uh, Galatians 5, 19, 21, which the way sometimes we read it. Okay, this is how we read it. When, Paul says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, 
drunkenness, wild parties, and all the other sins like these. Let me tell you again that as I have before, that anyone living this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Anybody want to be honest, you've read the Bible that way? There's certain ones that, man, we just highlight. It's like the highlighter jumps out. And then there's other ones that, oh, no, no. That can't be true of me. And we lean in on those. But it's amazing that Paul gives this list, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that puts side by side sexual immorality and division. That's crazy. Lustful pleasures and dissension. We put, what, some up here and some down here. If we live our lives out, what that demonstrates is that we don't believe that the law is perfect. We don't believe that scriptures are perfect. It's only what we want to take or what we want to apply. Now, that's just me. Nobody else reads the Bible that way, I know, right? We do. And by the way, more and more the culture sees that about Christianity. They start, they're, they're smart too. They have access to the Bible too. They've heard a few things too. And then they look at Christianity and go, wait a second. Why are you hammering on those sins when there's a million other sins that all of us are struggling with, but you won't address with those? It's getting quiet in here. All I can hear is the air conditioning. So fifth one, the last point of, and then we'll conclude with what it really looks like in our life. The last question to ask ourselves about living obediently is how do you define freedom? James goes on, he says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it will be blessed in what they do. James says the perfect law that gives freedom. Doesn't that sound contradictory? Law that brings freedom, doesn't law bring the opposite of freedom? Doesn't law define for you what you're doing wrong? Didn't the law in the Old Testament do that? Didn't the Jews find that they couldn't be perfect? But what is he saying? He's saying you need to understand what freedom looks like. See, our challenge is that we have a skewed definition of freedom. We have bought into this lie that that freedom is the absence of boundaries and limitations. That's freedom. That if I'm truly going to be free, then I can't have anything that restricts me or limits me, any boundaries, because I want to be able to be all that I can be and anything that I want to be and do anything that I want to do, and that's how we define freedom. That's not freedom. It's actually the opposite. That's actually bondage. So let let me explain, because biblical freedom the way that James is defining it, it's the presence of boundaries and limitations that allow us to be fully who God's created us to be. It's a context that God's created for us. It's within these limitations and boundaries. Let me use this as kind of a ridiculous example. So let's say there's a fish swimming around in a lake one day, and he gets this great idea that he feels limited and bound by the water. So he says to himself, I'm going to be free. So he swims up to the shore, and he jumps out of the water, and he hits the seashore or the, the side of the lake, and he starts flipping around. He says, I'm finally free. And then he starts to realize he's out of the water. And he starts to realize he can't survive. And then he starts to realize he can't get back into the water, and then he dies. Isn't that a great story? So freedom for the fish was to be free of the water. But what brings freedom that brings life to a fish? Water. He is at the most free state he will ever be in when he is in the context of water. That's what gives him life. 
The boundaries of that lake is the life that he has. And that's how he thrives, and that's how he lives. But for him to have ultimate freedom in his mind is to be free of the water. And the same thing is true when you follow Jesus. There's this mindset that we buy into that, man, he's just trying to control me and limit me. And especially if you're a teenager, you think God doesn't want you to have any fun. And so he says no to all the stuff that would be really cool to do. And then he leaves me with stuff that's boring and fun, and are not fun, and, and hard, and, and all the good stuff is out there, and that's why I got to go out and be free. No, that's the freedom that leads to death. The freedom that leads to life is the bound, within the boundaries and the limitations and the context that God has created us to live in. It's the creator saying, I made you, and I made you to live in a context that will allow you to flourish and to be alive. That's freedom. That's what James is saying. Listen, if you live within the context of what the scriptures outline for our lives, you will experience freedom that brings life. And so many times we have it the opposite way. Then I'm going to close with these last three things. What does obedience actually look like in our life? James highlights three things. Verse 26, it's heard in our speech. James said this, and he starts to use a word that many of us have a negative reaction to. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. In this context, James is not using the term religion as negative. He's using it in a positive way. He's saying, listen, if you are truly a person of faith, a follower of Jesus, a righteous person, then you will live this way. And he's saying if you're obedient and you're truly religious, you will find a way to do what is impossible for most people. And that is, we'll talk about when we get to chapter three, how do you get a rein on your mouth, your language, your tongue? That's one of the hardest things for us to do. But James says, listen, if you're actually living out obedience and in this law that brings freedom, you'll have the capacity to use your words to encourage and build up and instruct other people not to destroy them or to gossip about them, or to discourage them. You'll have the ability that most people don't have. And this is particularly important for a thing called church. Because this is where so many times church, or the church, finds itself being destroyed, not by the world and not by the devil, but by its, on its own, from within. Over the last few years, we've established a gossip policy. If you've gone through a line, or you're one of our leaders, in fact, leaders have heard this a million times, and if you've gone through a line, I go over this. Because one of the most destructive powers or forces in the church today is gossip. Because if the enemy can just let us turn on ourselves, he doesn't have to do anything. We make his job really easy. But our gossip policy as a church family, to make sure that we, we get rid of gossip, we starve it, we kill it, is that if somebody comes to you and they said, hey, you know, and they, they start to tell you and you know from the, what they're saying that they have an offense towards somebody else. Somebody said something mean to them, somebody did something wrong to them, and they're offended. So they come to you and you can tell it's something there. They may, they may come under the spiritual guise of, I need you to pray with me. Careful. That one sometimes is code word. I'm going to gossip, but I want to spiritualize my gossip. So let's pray. So if someone comes to you, The first time you can do it, but guarantee by the second time they come to you and you can confirm they have a true offense with that person. Then you are to say to them, you know, I I think that you're offended and hurt by that person. And I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to give you one week. Within this week, you need to go to that person and you need to work towards reconciliation with them. And at the end of the week, I'm going to check back with you. And if you haven't, I will go to them for you. And I will tell them that you have an offense with them 
so that we can bring you together and you can work towards reconciliation. Now, I already know people are like, what? That's crazy. No, that's biblical. That's exactly what Jesus tells us to do when he says, if you come to the altar to offer your gift and you know there's something not right with your brother or sister, don't offer your gift to me. He says, go first and be reconciled and then come back and offer your gift. If we live that out, guess what happens to to gossip? It's starved and it dies. Because not only do you do you realize that I can't do that? But what happens is people who have a tendency to gossip realize they have no one to gossip to. It's like, man, I can't go to that person. They're going to tell on me. I can't go to them. They're not going to listen to me because they're going to push me to go make it right. I have no one to talk to. Guess what happens? You don't get to talk. You don't get to gossip. And it dies. But what you do get is you get a face-to-face conversation that somebody who's offended you has to deal with their offense towards you and you have to deal with your unforgiveness towards them, which is exactly the thing that Jesus wants us to do. James says, if you get this obedience thing, you are a religious person who knows how to control their tongue in such a way that you're not destructive towards people, but you actually encourage them. Second thing of what obedience looks like, not only has to do with our words, but in verse 27, James says it's demonstrated in our actions. He says, religion that God our Father accepts is pure, and this is in verse 27, and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. This is a relatively popular verse. James is saying that if we truly are obedient and we are truly following Jesus, then it isn't our calling to care for the poor. It isn't our calling to care for the orphan. It isn't our calling to care for the widow. It is our responsibility. It isn't like, oh, hey, I'm really applauding that person. They're called to care for widows and orphans, but that's not my calling. No. It's not your calling. It's your responsibility. As a follower of Jesus, as someone who, as James is saying in a positive light, is religious. And this is important because the way that we live out our lives, the way we respond to need around us determines a lot about our obedience. Also in James 2, in verse 15 and 16, James says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? It hasn't translated. If you read through the Old Testament, you see a lot of references to widows and orphans and foreigners. Read through the book of Deuteronomy. It's all over the place. You have the foreigner, you have the the fatherless, and then you have the widow. So you have a foreigner who has no homeland. You have an orphan that has no parent, and you have a spouse or a widow that has no husband. You have people who find themselves in a situation where they don't have the support system or the network to be able to survive. Therefore, they need people to help meet their needs. How do we respond when we're faced with need? How do we respond? Do we tell people, hey, you know what? You should call the church. Yeah, they should call the church. Who's the church? It's us. No, how can I meet that need? I'm going to brag on somebody. She's not here. She's very, very far away, but I'm texting with her this morning. She emailed me a few weeks ago. Stacy Ziegler. Many of you know Stacy. Stacy uh, is currently in Hungary, and she is in medical school. And um, it's interesting when she, not too long ago, got to Hungary... Anybody heard Hungary in the news lately? There's this huge exodus out of Syria and out of Iraq of refugees, and they're making their way into Europe, and it just so happens that they're hitting Hungary first. And what's happened is the Hungarian government is reacting against. In fact, they've actually outlawed it to be a refugee. Isn't that crazy? 
And so you can't be like this foreigner coming in. So what's happening is they're stopping them at the train stations. When they come in on trains, these are Syrian families who have nothing except what they have on their backs. And they come into the train station and they want to get into other countries in Europe, but they're stopping them. They won't let them enter Hungary. They won't let them go to any other country, so they're stuck in these train stations. So Stacy emails Kim and I a couple weeks ago. She said, you won't believe, and of course I know what's going on. I've been watching the news. And she said, we're right in the middle of this. She said, the government won't do anything to help them. And so she said, a bunch of us who don't even really know each other, we started actually connecting, saying somebody's got to do something. And she goes, now there's about 30 of us that are going with our own money and buying supplies and walking into the train stations and trying to help the refugees. And so I emailed her back. I said, is there a church nearby that you can tap into as an avenue for people to give resource to so that you can help to meet the needs of the refugees? And she said she has, and she said, in fact, in texting this morning, she said, she said it's amazing. She goes, even some of the people in Hungary, because their government said it's, it's illegal to be a refugee, they will literally walk past the refugees and turn the other way. They won't help them because they don't want to get in trouble with the government. But Stacy's responded, why? Because she's realized that it is not my calling, it is my responsibility. She's there to go to medical school. She's not there to be in the middle of a refugee crisis, but God's placed her there because he wants her to be in the middle of a refugee crisis. See, that's what it looks like. It's that action in us that's not like, well, let me go get somebody who can help you. No, I'm here. What is God calling me to do to help you? To respond in action. And then finally, the last part of verse 27 at the end of this passage the last thing that obedience looks like in our life is it is verified by our purity. So James says to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And let me, I'm going to, we'll close with this, but I want to take just a little, few moments to talk about there's a tension that we like to separate in Scripture. So James, in verse 27, he says that religion that is pure, that is right, that what God, what God wants is to what? To care for our orphans and, widow and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves from being polluted from the world. Now, why is that significant? Because we have a tendency to take those two things that the Bible meshes together and separate them. And what we separate them into is on one side, we have morality, purity, being a moral, right person. And then on the other side, we have this thing called justice, caring for the poor, caring for people who are struggling, caring for the marginalized. And what we do in the church as a whole is we separate the two. So here's how it goes. One camp moves over here and says, I want to be the best, most righteous, most pure person that I can be before God so that I am holy and blameless, so that I get into heaven, so that I do everything right. And I don't want to be blemished by the world, so I try to isolate myself away because I don't want to be influenced by bad influence or bad people. So I kind of camp out over here, and I'll, every once in a while I'll do something nice for somebody, but I don't want to get too close because they might rub off on me. Now, I know this is, this, I'm not trying to offend anybody. You know what? In, in a generalized, stereotyped way, you know what we call that? Conservative Christianity. Now, there's another camp on the other side. And they think justice is the ultimate goal. Caring for the poor, caring for the needy, being in relationship with the broken. And so their lives are dedicated to that. And they'll do everything. But as they shoot for morale or they shoot for justice, they say, what I do over here has no impact on how I live my life personally. I'm supposed to care for the poor, but that doesn't mean that I have to live a moral life. You know, we call that liberal Christianity. 
So the conservatives go to one side and say it's morality, and the liberals go to the other side, and they say, no, it's justice. And the Bible says it's both. Listen to what Amos wrote, what the, what the Lord was saying to his people back then. Amos 2, verse 7 says, They trample on the heads of the poor as the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. What's going on there? Injustice and immorality connected together. And that's so important. If we're going to truly be obedient We can't just live moral lives. We can't just do justice. The Bible says we have to live out both. That's what obedience looks like. To actually be a community of people that is sold out to living right before God. To going through that list that we read in Galatians 5 of what what Paul wrote and taking each one of those things seriously, how we're obedient to Jesus, and yet at the same time, having a heart that drives us to care for people who are broken, who are different than us, that are a little bit dirty or filthy in our, our idea, and being with people whose lifestyle doesn't agree with our morality, and living in that tension, but living in that unity that lets the world know this is what it means to follow Jesus without going to either extreme. And the beauty of what's happening in the body of Christ right now is that line is getting blurred the liberal extreme and the conservative extreme are realizing there's a huge part of us that we got this thing wrong. And now there are communities of faith, there are churches across America that are now valuing valuing both morality and justice. I want that to be our story. I want that to be true of us. That they look at us and they think, wow, look at the way they live their lives. Look at the integrity of their heart, but look at the way they care for the poor. Look at the way that they take in people who need help. Look at the way they value widows. Look at the way they work within the foster care system to help kids and families who are going through difficult seasons of their life. Yeah, that's a little plug from last Tuesday night. Many of you were here for the foster care meeting. That's what should be our legacy. That's what the the city and the world should look at our church and say, hey, there's something about them. It's what the Bible intended. That's what James wrote. It's not one or the other. It's both. So let's go ahead and, and conclude. So what, what is James saying to us? Bottom line is that we have to come to the scriptures, we have to come to the Bible and let the Bible read our hearts and let it expose what it needs to expose, let it reflect back what God's saying and then say, now I'm going to live this out. I'm not going to be selective. I'm not going to pick and choose. I'm going to, I'm going to embrace what God's saying to me and now I'm going to choose to live this out. Go ahead and bow your heads. Let's, let's conclude. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the humility that it takes to truly be obedient. Lord, not one of us here would would claim necessarily to know it all. But Lord, we know that there may be areas in our life where you have maybe opened our eyes a little bit today of, of places where maybe we have been a little bit of a selective in our approach to what we hear or what we listen to. And whatever that might be for each one of us as individuals, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would give us the courage to walk out the obedience that you've called us to be, the obedient people who live moral lives but also value justice, who abstain from sexual immorality but also don't gossip, that we would be the kind of people that take in your perfect law and truly live it out in such a way that all of it is comprehensive for our lives. 
Lord, this is not easy, but that's why we're so grateful. You give us the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit to live out the life that you've called us to live. So, Lord, as we journey through this series together, as we each week absorb what you are saying through James, that it would translate immediately into our lives, lives of obedience, lives that are different, lives that truly point people to you and demonstrate who you are in their lives. In your name, amen.